Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my, of my burial. You will, not always have, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The word of the Lord. A couple of things off the top about this story that Addie just read for us. Uh, the scene takes place in the home of Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And these are very close friends of Jesus. He loves them. They love him. And um, Lazarus, although not really the focus of our time today, in the chapter earlier, uh, Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is very interesting. John mentions that Lazarus is also at this dinner party sitting there. And I don't mean like in a weekend at Bernie's kind of sitting there. Like he's alive and well and eating, so it's quite wild. And the scene revolves around this very awkward moment where Mary, uh, the sister, uh, anoints Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume. That's one thing. But then she lets her hair down and sort of washes Jesus' feet and then dries them off with her hair. This is also quite wild. Mary, throughout the Gospels, is always pictured at the feet of Jesus. She is always pictured in this posture with him. And it is a way of saying that Mary is a disciple of Jesus. She is at the feet of her teacher, but also her friend. And she never explains her actions as to why she does this to Jesus' feet. And again, it's quite awkward for sure, but she never really explains it. In fact, she doesn't really even speak in the story. It's Judas who speaks. So Jesus speaks on her behalf, saying she brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. And that's a very cryptic thing for Jesus to say, but he's right. His death is impending. It's one of the reasons this story sits at the very tail end of the season of Lent. We are reminded that Jesus is headed towards his death, his crucifixion, his burial. And so she seems to have known this for some reason, whether by divine intervention or Jesus had told her. I guess those are the same thing. Um, Thank you. That's a Bible joke. Um, But whatever the case is, she seems to have known this, and she is performing this act out of a realization about that. Now, about the perfume, and we're back to Judas here. Judas calls her out because, in his mind, it's wasteful. Now, the version that Addie read doesn't have the number, but Judas talks about how we could have sold this for 300 denarii which is a year's wages. Now, a couple things about this strike me as interesting. Judas must have at some point worked the fragrance counter at Macy's (laughs) to have even known how much this perfume was. Uh, But it is a year's wages. So the other thing we know here is that Mary rolls deep. Okay? Uh, Thank you. But Judas is uh, upset at this. And the thing we pick up 
in the story here is this tension. There's a real tension in the room. And again, this is the only account of this story where we get the thoughts of Judas. You may have picked up on it as Addie read the story that John doesn't really like Judas. He's a thief. He steals from the money bag. I love that translation. Uh, John just really doesn't like him at all. But he sets the tone quite well to really show us the tension in the story. He says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is a very interesting detail in the story. See, what Judas had hoped for, and I think many of the disciples had hoped for, is that Jesus would have been the kind of Messiah that was powerful, that he would enact some kind of new rule in Israel, that he would ascend to power in some way. We see this in other parts of the Gospels. There's great confusion over the fact that Jesus wasn't doing this and yet seemed to have the capabilities of doing so. He had quite a following. He was a healer, a miracle worker. He was very influential as a teacher. Lots of people knew about him. And he was starting to make the people in power nervous. And so for the disciples, there's this real sense that maybe Jesus could, in a way, assume some role of power. And the reason being to help Israel restore itself, herself, to her former glory, but mostly just to get out from underneath the shadow and the pressure of the opposing an oppressive presence of Rome. This was a very big deal. And Judas seems to have shared these sentiments. Now, all of these things about Jesus, that he healed, that he was a miracle worker, that he was influential as a teacher, all these things, these are not Messiah checklists that we find in the Bible. You can't really search for those and find them. But they did raise hopes around what Jesus was capable of doing and how much power was in the wings with him. And so Judas, I mean, God bless him. He's frustrated at this point. You know, he's very frustrated with Jesus. The movement for Judas is going in the wrong direction. For Judas, the smell of victory used to hang in the air, but now it's just the smell of some woman's perfume. And he's at the end of his rope. He's done. And John points that out. And this little detail in the story that the fragrance filled the house is just a tension point for Judas. But Jesus speaks and says, leave her alone. Isn't that great? Just leave her alone. Does this mean that Jesus approves of this wasteful (laughs) act? I don't know. But at the moment, he's just like, can you just leave her alone? And then he, again, explains that she has bought it so that she might use it at the day of his burial. It's very cryptic. Jesus' words here, they add insult to Judas's injury. Um, there's no political um, office or place of power for Jesus. When he speaks about his coming death, what he's saying is that none of those things are in my Sidelines, what's happening to me is this. It's the opposite of rising to power. I will lower myself to death. The presence of Lazarus in the story acts as a hopeful piece. 
because we know that the death of Jesus will not be the end of Jesus. And Lazarus sits there as a reminder of that. But opposite of all of that, opposite all of the tension, opposite all of the frustration with Judas, and again, I want to point out that in the other gospel accounts of this story, all of the disciples are kind of frustrated. Uh, But opposite all of that, Mary is quite grateful. She is in this very moment worshiping Jesus. And she's doing so without any concern (laughs) about what people might think. So we like Mary for this, right? She doesn't seem to care about what anybody else thinks about what she's doing. She's on lock. She's in the moment. Judas is on lock too, but it's on her. And he's critiquing. And Jesus uh, and Mary and Judas are in this like weird tension thing right now. Mary is, we might say, in this moment, quite charismatic. It's a very physical act of worship. It's also quite symbolic. And for Judas, even symbolic acts must be cost-effective. And Judas is more like, well, me, right? My tradition of church is the Christian church, churches of Christ, and our brothers and sisters and the disciples of Christ. Uh, And we are not really known for um, our charismatic ways. Uh, We sing, but we don't dance Uh, we kind of don't clap, and uh, we certainly don't raise our hands. And that's partly because, I mean, when I grew up, like, why would you raise your hand? Who's going to hold the hymnal? Like, you couldn't, sort of weird, you know? Um, When I started in ministry, I was a youth minister, and it was in the mid-90s. And if you don't know anything about the 90s, um, they were great, but... It was like the end of the world in the church world at that time because screens were replacing hymnals. I was there for it. I had a front row seat courtside uh, to this whole worship war thing that was happening. And it was like literally the end times because a screen, go in here, a screen equaled uncontrolled worship. If we put a screen up there, there's gonna be crazy people laying on the floor. You know, I guess in their mind, like the hymnal was like the like, this keeps everyone in control. The hymnal controls the fun. Okay, this is the way it was. I mean, I know you're laughing, but like it was for real people. Anybody go to church in the '90s and like churches split over this stuff? You know, and uh, it was really sort of kind of funny. And the worship wars, man, it was real. Worse than you even know. Uh, there are churches that exist today because they just had to get out, you know, over all of this. Now, I prefer a band over an organ, um, but I'm still rather a stoic person. A friend of mine who's not familiar with our church tradition was like, what, um, what would you say? What is the Christian church? What is that? And instead of replying with a really long email, I just made this meme and sent it to them. (laughs) The one Christian church guy at the charismatic church service. Do you see it? Yeah. Does that ring a bell? You're like, that's me. Well, I thought that was funnier than you did. Um, (laughs) 
But in all seriousness, like Mary's actions make everyone kind of nervous. She's, it's over the top. It's wasteful. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She loves Jesus. I mean, Jesus brought her brother back from the dead. Like, is there anything too far at that point in gratefulness? She's been changed by Jesus. When I read this story every year, I'm always reminded of that passage in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Uh, And I love this. The prophet says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the what? The feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Perhaps Mary has this in the back of her scripture memory mind when she thinks of Jesus. Mary is very present to who Jesus is. She's very in the moment. Her worship is an expression of the weight that she has placed on the person and the work of Jesus. And it is wasteful. We don't need to like deny that. And even though it is wasteful, it is, uh, her worship is immeasurable. She's caught up in his presence. And when I think about worship, when I think about church services, when I think about what we do in here, I think that not all worship is measurable. It just isn't. It's all quite perishable, actually, and often forgotten. Um, All that we do in this room, like the communion itself, will disappear very quickly. When we sing and when we pray and when we learn together, it's not always to our benefit to think too deeply about how these things will apply to our lives in the days to come. But rather, we do these things together in these moments in the immediate presence of Jesus among us. We don't always enter this room to pick up where we left off the last week, but we enter into a very real moment in the very real presence of a present God. Eugene Peterson said, you can only be present to a presence. And of course, he is speaking of the presence of God. You can only be present to a presence. And this is the the difference in the room that day with Judas and Mary. Mary seems to be quite aware of the presence, whereas Judas is more concerned about other things. And you can hear these words like, you can only be present to someone you know is present. And church services are not always actionable They are moments often during which we just pour things out. To quote the theologian Marva Dawn, worship is quite often a royal waste of time. It is. What do you guys do in that building on Sunday? We just waste time. Because you could be anywhere. Trust me, it's a beautiful day. You could be on the river, you could be in the mountains, you could be on the lake, you could be at the ocean, uh, but you're here wasting time, and it's a beautiful thing. 
Whereas the world might see what we do is just, a, it's not cost effective. You can't be your best self in here. Go out there and get it. Go do something. Make something of your day. But instead, the church comes together to just waste time in the presence of Jesus together. Our worship, however, is time well wasted, I would say. Our worship does hang in the air of our subsequent days. The remains of a fragrance of the time that we wasted together in the presence of Jesus. Amen? Joan Chatister says that Lent is a call to renew a commitment grown dull, perhaps by a life more marked by routine than by reflection. So that's what we do in this season. We think about the very presence of Christ in our lives and in our world, and we are present to that. We waste our time on that, and we allow ourselves to pour out uh, our worship and praise to him. I pulled into Nazareth Feeling about half past dead I just need to find a place Where I can lay my head Mr. Can you tell me where A man might find a bed He just grinned and shook my hand No was all he said